Hello and welcome to the Alliance Party After Dark, a podcast for the politically aware brought to you by the Alliance Party. Content for this episode recorded on Sunday, January 17th, 2021. I'm Greg from Philly, your host for this evening, joined tonight by the Missouri State Chair of the Alliance Party, Dan Schaefer. Hello, Greg. Nice to be here. And well, this evening, we're also talking with special guest, Kent Garschweiler, the Virginia State Chair of the Alliance Party. Hello, everyone. Glad to be here. I'm glad to have you, Kent. So uh, as we come to you guys, the nation is still kind of reeling from the storming of the Capitol. Mm-hmm. We addressed it on the previous show, but uh, I think there's still a lot more to cover here. And we have Kent, who's the state chair from that area, uh, Virginia, I know from living there, tied directly to the pulse of D.C. in a lot of ways, at least Nova is. Uh, it's Northern Virginia for the uninitiated. Um, let's uh, let's get into it. Um, before we start with with any of the outline, I just Ken, what was your experience watching that happen, being so close to being so close to there, and Virginia being so tied to D.C. and Maryland, and kind of part of that whole political and social ecosystem? Well, the, the region where I'm at is two and a half hours away. Um, we get a lot of visitor, visitors out here um, that take their vacations for a weekly basis. And the vibes over here is that it's it's happening just over the mountains because I'm mm-hmm. in the mountain region. And it's like probably most people is in shock, but um, knowing my Republican backgrounds, uh, of the past, uh, I, I'm not actually in shock. I kind of didn't see it coming because, you know, I just uh, I'm in my own personal life now of, of trying to get over uh, some of my Republican things of, of uh, ideologies. But mm-hmm. um, it, it it reminds me of those ideologies, and uh, I, I'm actually not shocked. So I'm, I'm just sad. I'm more disappointed than anything. Yeah, I think if if I could put a label on it, oh, there were so many indications that this, not maybe exactly this, but something like this was going to happen. But yeah. the overwhelming, overwhelming feeling, at least from the, the media class, and I think a lot of average people, is that well, there's no way it would actually happen. Like, this is America. We don't do that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Dan, do you think that's about right? Kind of, but I'm, I'm, I'm kind of in the same boat as Kent here in the sense that, you know, I, I think a lot of people did see it coming. Um, I don't know if I mentioned this last week, but I, I know that when my son was growing up, he's, he's 26 now, but when he was a young man, we used to talk politics once in a while. Now he still wants to talk politics. It's interesting how he's into it still. But um, I used to tell him, you know, we, we would watch these movies about, you know, coups taking place in different countries or, you know, military taking over. And I remember turning him to him many times and saying, don't ever believe that that can't happen here. You know, we, we, we elect our officials. Uh, we put trust in them when we elect them. But they may betray that trust at some point. And so we have to keep an eye on these people. And so, you know, over the decades, you know, I'm old enough to have voted for Reagan, uh, which I did twice, actually, in 80 and in 84. Um, so I'm admitting my age here. But um, I remember during that time, as I was sort of becoming more politically aware, 
uh, I saw the ground shifting quite severely under Reagan. And the way it manifested itself under, under the first George Bush presidency was there was a lot of talk about this thing called uh, family values. And this, I think, you know, along with inviting in some of the more religious elements into the Republican Party, it started to destabilize the party, I think, and actually pull it in a direction of polarization, of righteousness, overly righteous. And um, yeah, so I'm, I'm with Kent. You know, I, it's not like I didn't see this coming, and it's not like I, I haven't warned people, including my own son, about this very thing happening. Uh, but it's disappointing, nevertheless. You know, it's 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 almost like a family member died or something. You <laughs> know, it's it's mm-hmm. it's it's really it, 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 you hope it's one of those things where you 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 hope that you're wrong about it, but you fear that you're right. Well, in this case here, um, I was right, and that that makes that makes it very depressing for a guy like me. It's interesting that you you kind of can draw draw a direct line from. All the way back to Reagan. That's oh, there's 40 people years ago at this point. Yeah, there's people that draw that line all the way back to Nixon. Um, you know, the the Republican Party was actually a very progressive party at one point, in, in, up, up until very recent in history, actually. And now it's just swung the opposite direction, way in the opposite direction. They are no longer progressive, yeah. and they are no longer even conservative. I argue they're they're nothing what they used to be. And I think that uh, going all the way back to Nixon and his so-called Southern strategy, which was a reaction to the civil rights movement of the uh, 1960s, um, this was done for political expediency. This was done Mm -hmm. to gain political influence and and to get votes, basically. Well, they got the votes, but now, you know, they created this Frankenstein monster and now they're having to suffer with it. I would just say that, yeah, you're right about, the, I, I mean, I grew up as a teenager in the Reagan years, so I didn't have a chance to vote. When he was out in 1988, I was just turning 18, so, but he was out, so, um, but, yeah, they do say that uh, if you look back at the parties, a lot has changed, and uh, the uh, John F.K., they say, for instance, now, you would look at him and say, what was his values? And they'd say, well, that looks more conservative than it is yeah. to yeah. So, yeah. so that's true. So, um, so I think there's a lot of Republicans that I I can feel for for their the emotions that I saw on storming the Capitol were just amazing to see because I know what that emotion feels like not just to men you're in church but the the faith in your constitution the faith in your country the faith of being a veteran the faith of of all that stuff and then all of a sudden just the hearsay, the gossip, the biases, the media and all different places saying this and that, uh, the distractions, and somehow you come up with this idea that I've just got to go storm that Capitol building and make everything right. I just don't see how that solves the problem when eventually, you know, the police are going to surround you and take you down, take you out. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, obviously, that the storming of the Capitol is not the end of this story. In fact, this early as the day after actually heck as early as that evening you had some conservative politicians uh or republican politicians at least in their speeches you know many of them still voted against the results of the election many of them maybe not directly praised the protesters but certainly said they were justified Mm -hmm. 
and or you know, and in one case suggested that you know wasn't actually supporters of Donald Trump at all. So the spinning happened almost immediately. I mean, within a few hours, and it's since continued and amplified. Mm-hmm. And there's already talk of multiple days of action this coming week. We'll see which of those actually materialize. Yeah. After this is all over, I mean, it seems pretty apparent to me, at least, that there is not going to be a disruption of the you know of the inauguration to the point that biden will not be president uh so you're going to have a biden administration you're going to have very slight democratic control of congress where does this leave the republicans where does the this narrative journey that they've been on for the past 50 plus years where does that ultimately lead them right now can they survive with this rising surge of authoritarian populism in their party, or will the more traditional Republican elements reassert control? Will it result in a split? It's kind of hard to imagine, given the difficulty, as we all know, of starting a new political party, Mm -hmm. uh, that that's the the route it would take, but presumably it's possible. Ken, it sounds like you you've kind of have your finger on the pulse of, of at least East Coast conservative thinking. Well, um, one thing I've realized when I moved to Indiana uh, was that you had a more capitalist conservative religious side in Indiana, and in Virginia it's more environmental. We have mountains here and the parks, and it's everyone you know has a piece of property out in the, in the rural community that is not farmland, it's actual woods. And uh, they, they, they value their environment. Uh, it's, it's a very uh, different kind of weird conservatism to me and being in Indiana, which is farmland and you vote Republican. It's over here, it's, it's where, uh, yeah, my backyard and I'm gonna go back there with a campfire, you know? So uh, I think the Republicans are in for uh, a division that's inside them to find themselves, their soul. I know that there are going to be hardcore, there's hardcore on the left wing as well, uh, that drives the party. But people inside the Republican Party, if you say you're Republican, um, which I still might be on their list, I don't know, but I certainly don't look at them as all truth now. Um, They're going to have to find their way, whether they're going to stick to like the most extreme points of it, or they're going to say, hold on a second here. I have a brain. I'm going to think for myself. I'm going to stop listening to all the gossip. I'm not going to get led by fear. I'm going to say, what exactly is the truth here? Because I'm getting told too many truths in different, two different directions. And uh, they might become the non-Trumpers that are being split and just add to their uh, attendance or their amount of people just increase in size. And then, of course, the, the extremists will continue to add to their size, whoever they can get into theirs. Um, so we'll just have to wait and see. How do we think that that division and that struggle would play out? Is that the kind of thing that we're going to see in primaries? And if the primary challenges are or are not successful, that's going to significantly drive what direction this goes? Or is this going to be something that plays out outside the direct political arena over the course of many years. I think this is going to be a long-term problem until a middle party comes out uh, and like our Alliance party and uh, says, look, you don't have to pick a side. You can be independent 
free thinking and understand that everyone has a difference of looking at things through a personal bias of their own. And sometimes some people will act on their own bias and become very emotional and storm the capital. So, mm-hmm. so, so uh, we need to know how to control those emotions when we start thinking and our emotions start getting stirred. Um, we need to work together. It's what it really comes down to. Uh, a United Nation uh, or a country needs to have united people. And in order to do that, we have to work together. No matter, we're all going to think the same. We're all going to want the same things. We're going to have to somehow figure out how to get past those differences to say, hey, I can wake up in the next morning and know no one's coming after me. And then work on, you know, whatever you can bring to the table to solve for that day. Um, solving some problems would be nice for a change than having to constantly argue over whose agenda is better than the others. Um, we'll have to wait and see how this goes for the Republicans. It does seem to be some utility. We were talking about this a little bit before the show. It does seem seem to be some utility, and rather than sticking to a specific position and having two parties absolutely entrenched in some talking point or another, some policy point or another, it seems a lot better to have a shared understanding of how to solve problems and how to figure things out. And whatever answer we get to from that process is whatever answer we get to. I don't know how realistic that would be, but it sounds like a much less stressful (laughs) kind of American politics. Well, I kind of look at it as, I kind of look at it from the standpoint of view of of how you see children. I see adults as children in a lot of ways. Um, I see see the argument between two parties, like two parents arguing all the time. If a child sees that, that's not something a child wants to see. They want to see united parents who have differences of opinion, but somehow they can figure out how to make things work. That's where marriage is, a struggle between two individuals with two different ideas at some points. And that's what this country needs, is someone who can mend those wounds. And I don't think that with the extremists on both ends, of both parties, of the political spectrum going the way they're going, trying to win, it's always about winning, uh, then compromising and saying, okay, I didn't win this one, but maybe next time, but at least I'm alive the next day. That That is a goal we should be working for, is compromising. And I don't endorse uh, enhancing separation. I endorse embracing uh, companionship and togetherness as a nation. And it's really disappointing to see that, that we have sown ourselves too much to a party when the party itself has changed their way to separate country. I agree with that. And I would love to get into sort of the mechanics of how we might do that. That both Democrats and Republicans sort of actively, I mean, whether it's intentional or not, I think a lot of times it is, they actively push people to be extreme, to be polarized. Mm-hmm. And there's a significant uh, kind of litmus test culture. Um, a full adoption of even the most extreme aspects of a party's platform. And if you're not on board with that, then they'll, they'll turn on you on social media or you have to risk threats of a primary challenge, things of that nature. No. Polarization pays though, right? It, it's, it's part of the winning um, combination of actions that gets you to, to the position of power. And, and to Kent's, uh, to, to Kent's point, 
it really is an obsession of power rather than a, an obsession with doing what's right for people. And when it becomes a power play, then you you do everything you can. It's not just even polarization. It's it's uh, fixing the election as much as you can. And no matter you know, I know that we, we've been talking about uh, the inspiration for the riots being that you know, or the insurrection inspiration being the fixed election. Well, it is fixed in a way because of uh, gerrymandering. It is fixed in a way because of voter disenfranchisement. And these have been going on for a long time. And it's the result of one party trying to gain the upper hand over the other party at all costs. And it's the outcome of polarization because polarization pays. And, and to your earlier question, too, about um, about what's happening within the Republican Party, I thought it was very interesting this morning I was watching on Meet the Press. Um, it was uh, Rich Lowry, I think his name is. He's the editor of National Review. Um, and he was asked, you know, what's happening with the Republican Party? And he, and he spoke about the possibility of, the, of, their, uh, of a Republican civil war. And he spoke about it as if it's a foregone conclusion. I was really, I was really shocked by that. And here's a you know, true conservative of the William F. Bugley mold uh, talking about a Republican civil war as if it's a foregone conclusion. So um, this is somewhat alarming. I, I, I don't know if, they're gonna, if it's going to be fought through, through uh, primaries, as you mentioned, um, as you mentioned, Greg, but um, it's, it's somewhat devastating. It's somewhat uh, devastating for everybody in the country. And, and, and back to Ken's point, you know, it is parents fighting and, and the children want to see, they want to see the disagreements. I mean, you can't get out of that. They want to see difference of opinion, but they don't want the, the uh, vitriol, the, the uh, zero-sum game that's being played these days. That's, that's, that's what's driving us to this point. Yeah, the hubris is really amazing. And, 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 and of course, I always uh, think that the primaries are, I, don't, I myself don't even pay attention to the primaries of two main parties because I know I don't usually like want to associate with those two parties for a while now. But um, when, they, when they run five, six, 20, whatever people for in the primary, it seems to be the most extreme that comes out mm-hmm. a, a lot of cases. And then once I start to notice it, or most of people start to notice, because we're all busy workers, you know, that, oh, you've got this far left and you got this far right person. And it's like, they don't want anything to be the same as what the other guy wants. They want it their way. And that's the only way they want it. And it's like, this is all we've got. This is the best the U.S. can provide. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, Let's hear some debates on what you plan to do, what you want to do, not like how bad the other guy is. You yeah. know, uh, it feels like, like I said, I see, I see adults now as like children on a playground and they're arguing. It's like, it's ridiculous. It's like, can we just like, hey, I'll take my turn on the swing. You take your turn on the swing. It's not like, well, he's had five minutes more than me. And then now I'm going to make a big deal of it. You know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah. It's, 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 it's inevitable. Childish. It ends up being yeah. a fight. It's inevitable. Yeah. 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 And, um, yeah, it's disappointing. It really is. I think the zero-sum game element is a huge part of it. Um, I don't really see a way around that until we change voting structure in one way or another. But until you have victory going to all one side or all to the other side, uh, there's really not much incentive for you to reach across that aisle and try to make, especially as polarization increases because it becomes less and less likely that you'll successfully attract anyone from the other side to your side. 
Right. And that, there's that and, middle ground there, or that you are you're somehow accountable for um, you're somehow accountable for your treatment of other candidates or your treatment of the other side. Maybe that's because, for instance, there's multiple candidates available, and you're not the default option if they don't like the other guy. You know, that's a really difficult structural problem to overcome. Well, that's uh, there's no price to pay for mm-hmm. for dissing the other side or for disrespecting the other side. There's no price to pay for calling names to the other side to to say things like the Democrats are a Satan worshiping cabal that that uh, runs you know children pedophile rings and things. I mean, it, it's it's all completely ridiculous. Okay, but but you know. You can say that and not have to pay a price, and I think it it comes down to those primaries, right? Because uh, if you're if you're in a district that is that is gerrymandered heavily toward your party, whether it's Democrat or Republican, or well, that's about it right now. It's just one or the other. Um, you don't pay a price. All you have to do is insult the other person just to ensure that that your district continues to stay with your party. And that's a problem. I mean, and, and you hit upon something there, Greg, about changing the primary system. Um, I'm a big believer in that. I think we should have things like, you know, final five voting and things like that. It, it's, mm-hmm. um, it's something that was um, the politics industry from, uh, uh, who is that, Catherine Gale and um, Michael Porter. We actually had Catherine Gale on the, uh, on the podcast uh, some months ago. And um, they talk at length about, about this being part of the issue, part of the big issue, is is those primaries. You gotta you gotta get people in those primaries. You 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 don't want to have uh, a party fight amongst itself and out primary somebody who's not holding the line, who's not holding an extremist position as much as he should. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, one of the things that you know the primaries is is that hopefully. And this is what I'm looking for is to we have primaries just for the alliance party because I am just so eager to talk to people. But this COVID slowing us down, uh, and you know, ourselves organized to, to handle what this COVID is going on because you know people don't you want to stay away from each other because you're afraid you're gonna get this COVID virus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and right now it's not looking good during this time of year. So yeah. when it gets over or lessons or something, we're hoping to get out there and and, and in a positive way. I I have I've spoken to people and they, they, when they see me and they want to talk an intelligent, knowledgeable, you know, emotionally controlled, um, logical brain thinking, intelligent conversation. I am all go. It becomes so stimulating. It's an amazing thing to happen. We get those people who want to talk and think these out. He's like, man, you're on the same page as me. And, and it's like, it's almost feels like there's nothing that can stop us from doing things right. And I am just eager to see some Virginia people out there that, that feel the same way and just want to stop this insanity because it's like Einstein said, uh, you keep doing the same thing over and over again. You just drive you insane. And this is just going mm-hmm. on for so long. And I, I, I tie it all back to the 2000. It wasn't until after we went in for WMDs and didn't really find what we've been looking for. But mm-hmm. I look back to the 2000 election, I'm like 50-50 and I scratched my head after the election and I was like, why is it 50-50? Something's going on in this country that I'm not sure what the heck's going on. Are we lost our way after the Cold War or what? And mm-hmm. I think this 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 past election has proved to me that there is, and the the meanness of it, uh, with the riots and everything, uh, the way it looks, um, 
that there's something definitely wrong with the two-party system right now. And we have got to get our heads on straight. And and some referee, hopefully it will be our alliance party becoming the new major party, can referee between these two boxers because this isn't looking good. Yeah. The fulcrum position, as they say. Now, yeah. Ken, you mentioned something interesting about, you know, more activities reaching out and talking to people once, once Corona sort of recedes at least a little bit. And hopefully that'll happen now that we're starting to see the vaccine being distributed. I'm curious as to how, if anything, you've attempted to grow Alliance Party membership in Virginia in the COVID environment. What strategies have you tried and has there been anything that's worked? Well, in our uh, recent meetings that we've not physically had, but in our emails we sent it out, started that we have received some responses we're actually finding which people at which positions of universities and uh, levels of government would be interested and have us come in at some point when this covid <laughs> slows down um, to come in and explain who we are what we are we care about the issues of your local community um, and see if we can set some chapters up on different college campuses um, so they're not, uh, just Republican or Democrat. Uh, these kids are there, but they don't actually live at these towns. They're going to college. So they can go home. They could share the information with their parents and say, look, dad, mom, there's a way out of this craziness. Uh, I, I speak for myself only, um, as an individual, but I happen to have relatives that are higher strung on the Republican side still. Um, but I know there are other people out there with students that are young people because I sympathize with them because I work with them actually in a pizza shop. But, um, and I have the time to do this because I care about the country. But they have parents too. They're on the edge too as well. And it's like, you don't have to go there, mom and dad. Um, there's a new path. I think the future is a new party, honestly. Uh, if we're going to get out to the stars before we all end up nuking each other. But... <laughs> <laughs> I keep asking myself, the, the weapons kit more and more easy to push the buttons and in five seconds, everything's gone. I, I think we need to somehow step back and say, how much more money we keep throwing in these weapons that we can't use because if we do, then everything's gone. We're going to have to deal with the fact that we don't agree with some other nations the way they treat their people. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's really nothing much we can do other than going to war. And I don't think I want to see a bunch of dead Americans doing that. So... Yeah, that's a well. That's that could be a podcast by itself, addressing mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. addressing pushing our foreign policy more assertively in a essentially multi nuclear nation world. Where now, not even people that were original parties to those treaties are are the ones with nuclear weapons. It's it's proliferated quite a bit, and it's starting to get to the point where. You know, it's not going to be super easy to contain any kind of diplomatic situation or maybe even an accidental launch of some kind. I would, India, you've got Pakistan, Israel, yeah. Iran. They're all sort of in this game now. Uh, but the United States is still the leader. We can still kill the world a gazillion times over. <laughs> yeah. People are going to look to us uh, or should look to us Uh you know, if you're thinking about what America's role in the world would be, I think a lot of Americans would assume that we're the country that would defuse 
some of that, hopefully, and prevent things from getting to that point. But well, then you've got a lot of humanitarian situations in countries with nuclear weapons directly, and, and how do we address those in a scenario where we can't really bring our military to bear in the way that we might have been able to in the past? Um, yeah. That's a tough one. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I see. I don't see Russia and China as an enemy. I, once they have the nukes to destroy us, we have the nukes to destroy them. It's a zero-sum game. So what's the other option? You're just going to have to talk to them. You're going to have to work with them and say, what are your personal needs for your own people in Russia? We have needs in our own people in America. Let's work together on solving that. Stop spending the money on the military. Reduce the fear against each other. And start spending the money not on guns that sit on a shelf in hopes, or in hopes that... Or, or, in the future that we don't have to use them, uh, that we can use that money instead of buying guns and building guns, we can build farms, we can build agriculture, things like that to feed our people and, and infrastructure. I, I don't understand why we have to keep going to this fear game between each nations. Um, if we help those nations that we hate the most with their people, then maybe they will change to a more agreeable form, not like us, but more agreeable form that we can actually say, okay, they're improving their lives. The government is actually providing the foods that they're denying them, you know, things like North Korea. I think of people, a lot of people seem to think that North Korea is, you're building nukes because he promised his grandfather he'd build nukes. I mean, it's like telling your relative, I promise I'll go to college, you know. Mm -hmm. um, once he builds the nukes, my question is, what are you going to do next? Mm-hmm. Because if you nuke us, we'll nuke you, you won't have a future. We won't have a future. You won't have a future. That's a zero-sum game. So what's his next goal? So if we go and say, hey, look, you want to build a nuke, obviously you're on a path. We probably can't stop you now. You've already gone this far. But what are your plans after that? What's your plans after college, so to speak? Mm -hmm. Do you want to feed your people? Do you need help feeding your people? Yeah, I do need me to feed my people. I want my people to, in my nation to be a great nation, and I'm a great leader. Fine. Then here's some ideas we could work together on. We need to stop saying you're the enemy and I'm going to hold and stop you in every way I can. That doesn't make friends. That actually makes some people, if you corner them, want to strike back at you. So, Well, I, I think that the situation, if we're going to go into foreign policy, I think it's, it's even more nuanced in a sense, though, because there is the United States and the allied powers in general have a long history of imperialism that has foisted upon other nations um, uh, our, tried to foist upon other nations our monetary system and uh, to some degree our values. And it doesn't, it doesn't work in other nations. Uh, look at Masada back in, uh, I think it was Masada was his name, and back in Iran in, in 1953, who was a duly elected uh, prime minister, overthrown with the help of the CIA to establish the Shah of Iran. Well, we all know mm -hmm. what the rest of that story, how that all played out. Uh, so when you look at Iran these days and you think, well, they're the enemy of the state, they're the axis of evil, you got to take a second look at this thing and say, you know, a lot of this is just blowback from actions prior to our current situation. You know, and you look at the World Bank and the IMF, how they go into these nations and exploit natural resources uh, and exploit the human resources as well 
uh, drive people off their farms so they can drill oil, and, and then the people end up well, they have no no skills, no you know, so they become you know outcasts in their own society, whereas everything was great before that. You know, it's a bit of a bit of a trite example here, but uh, these types of actions have to stop because this is what motivates a lot of the anti-American sentiment, and the only way then to fight that anti-American sentiment is to big is to build up a a big army. And as far as nukes go, I mean, yeah, it's the mutual assured destruction. That was what kept, uh, to a lot of people's opinion, was what kept the world from, you know, nuking each other was mutual assured destruction. But that assumes that you have something to lose. The United mm-hmm. States had something to lose by attacking the USSR. The USSR had something to lose by attacking the U.S. We didn't want to destroy ourselves, so we didn't want to destroy each other. But if you're a country that has nothing to lose or you're a people that, have, that feel you have nothing to lose— that mutual assured destruction doesn't mean anything. It doesn't play the same way. So yeah. we have to yeah, rethink a lot of what we've done. And a lot of the simulation games I've played, uh, you have a point where you're a nation and you can control other nations on what they do, their action stuff. I know there's Civil Hit 5 and there's Superpower 2, which you can play any nation in the world and manage your budgets, military, and the politics. But there's a point where that nation has a limited time to take over another nation, uh, fix your economy, a uh, you know, and political control and stuff. It may be your own nation's activities. And once you pass that point, you're not going to get back to that part where you can actually do what you want to do. Mm-hmm. And once once I got its nukes, and we got our we had our nukes already. China's got its nukes. I mean, you're at a zero sum. You you've already thinking, okay, we're not taking this nation over because they'll just launch the nukes and then everything's over. Everybody gone. Mm-hmm. So you have to come up with a different plan on how do you work with these countries. Uh, Russia, uh, I've seen the hour long or so show that Putin does every year. I, I don't know if it's three hours long or one hour long. I can't remember. He, he actually takes phone calls in from his, I guess, constituents or whatever in the nation. And, he, and they ask him about, I saw one was about infrastructure. Same thing we have, infrastructure needs. Mm-hmm. And he says, well, I'll, I'll get those potholes fixed or whatever, you know, you, you know. And I, I was like, wow, I didn't know they had this thing going over there. Um, but this globalization thing, it's getting bigger. Population's getting bigger. We're trading more with other nations. We all depend on each other more. Um, I think Russia and China and America being the ones with the most nukes and the most people in, in a way control over the, the world need to figure out a way to work together and create a system where the rest of humanity can get on the same page so we are not nuking each other when we're about to reach the stars, which is exactly with the same path that I found out Elon Musk was saying was that we need to get off this planet quick before we blow each other up. <laughs> and I think that's, I think that, I think he was on the same page as me. It's kind of weird that Mark Cuban and, and, and um, Elon Musk are all thinking like, like I was, as I keep shocked every time I see something, it comes from those two. Um, well, not yeah. the, not the Musk thing, but some of your other comments kind of bring this back full circle a, a a major risk with all this domestic unrest and with a lot of the actions that the Trump administration has taken toward our foreign policy apparatus generally, the State Department, a lot of what you might call preventative national security arms, like uh, various national security agencies and the FBI, Justice Department, uh, our policy and intelligence analysis arms. He's either ignored and neglected them hasn't filled key staff positions in them has 
uh, in some cases replace them with people that are arguably wildly unqualified. Mm-hmm. And then with the domestic unrest on top of that, it sort of undercuts a lot of America's soft power, our non-military diplomatic power, mm-hmm. because we no longer can be that role model for stable democracy that we might otherwise be able to be and use that as leverage to influence other nations. I think that kind of brings this all back into an interesting question is what is the long-term impact of the of the Republican Party implosion on our security, both foreign and domestic? Well, there's a lot of a lot of areas that I think the Republicans are going to have to deal with, and that is how are you going to pay for the debt, the interest and everything? You keep cutting taxes, he's going to pay that bill. Mm. And, uh, you know, in World War II, if I remember correctly, the taxes went from 15% all the way up to 94%. And then after the war, of course, it's easy for politicians to go, okay, vote for me, I'll lower your taxes. This is it 94%? Let's lower it down lower. That's pretty. That's a pretty good deal if you're paying 94%. That's, it gets getting lower and lower, but who's paying for keeping the country rolling? Um, you know, it's, it's those taxes, and most of those taxes do come from people who have money. So if you keep lowering the taxes, who's going to pay the bills? Um, well, you just keep borrowing, and that's on the taxpayer's credit card. Um, we're just putting ourselves in a hole. And eventually, at some point, inflation is going to kick in. The taxes are going to go up, whether you like it or not, to pay, to pay for these things. And, and, and with COVID, if we were in a good situation financially before this COVID even came, we could have easily taken trillions out and said, hey, no problem. We got this problem covered. But we were in a problem way before this COVID came because our two-party system just continues to borrow for their own little projects and I'm not even going to go into the efficiency part, making sure the monies are well spent. But um, I'm just, just like one wants to have no tax to take out of the, the people who do pay taxes and fund this country to get the money flowing. And the other one wants to spend it like crazy. So, uh, mm-hmm. you know, where do you, where you go for this? It has to be a sensible reconstruction of almost everything I can think of now of some form of government. And depending on government more and more to fix the problems, we need to start giving people like opportunities to say, we as government can't fix everything. We're going to have to figure out a way to get the people to fix the problems in the local community than to have to keep throwing it on, on the politicians and leaders to go to Congress. And then they just argue over agendas and they become activists instead of representatives in our Congress. Well, I, I would... Uh... I would beg to differ from the end uh, the end argument you make in there because that is exactly what a government is supposed to do. It it is if it's functioning correctly, uh, it promotes the general welfare, provides for domestic tranquility, all these things that have been outlined in in the preamble. Um, it it but if it's not functioning correctly, then we're unable unable to solve these problems. And 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 also, Ken, I think you're right in the sense that. It became politically popular to keep promoting tax cuts. Uh, I think the the debt to GDP ratio was actually lowest right around 1980. Ironically, that's when Reagan took over, right? Conservative, and uh, it started going up from there. So, um, so we have been borrowing against the future. And and back to your original question too, Greg. Um, security. This is a huge security issue. It's a national security issue. What happens 
when we start losing our credit rating around the world, which has happened mm-hmm. once already. Um, we, we got downgraded from an A plus to an A or something like that. Um, what happens to our monetary system when foreign nations decide to not base their their trading uh, currency on U.S. currency, but on someone else's currency, on Chinese yuan or 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 uh, you know maybe the European euro or something like that? Um, it's a national security issue, I think. You or know, or it, even a less drastic thing: what if, say, a, Ch- a China, for instance, because they own a lot of our debt. What if we get to the point where we're hesitant to take strong action against them when we need to because we're afraid that they're not going to lend to us anymore and we don't know what to do if they don't? Yeah. Well, they don't own as much debt as a lot of people think they do. They do. I, I forgot what the percentage was. It was I looked it up quite a few months ago. It's It was not as big as I thought it was. But but to your point, you're right. I mean, you, you can't— well, I, uh, That could really apply to any country, really. Yeah, like, exactly. Well, you needed you needed money. I know we've been giving it to you, but that could always stop. Yeah, it's like oh, yeah. You basically been sh- selling your shares of stock to us, and we've been buying it with, with cash to fund your government. Um, right. Yeah, I don't know. It, it in some ways I don't feel as threatened about that, and maybe I'm just being naive. But I always felt that if a country, if you're indebted to a country. It's just like being indebted to the bank. The bank doesn't want to put you out of business. They don't want to just, you know, force you to liquidate and everything right away. If there's any potential for you whatsoever to pay off that debt, um, then they will work with you. So I hope that we would have the same situation with other nations. Yeah, and, and that's the thing. We get a lot of imports in from China. So for China to say, oh, we don't want, you know, no more imports going to the United States or we're going to make America financially unstable then that means there won't be a lot of buying uh, you know money going to china for the u.s buyers because we're a consumer nation so they don't want to ruin it but what they do want to do is they do want to be a superpower that's obvious yeah yeah and and you know what you know when i say to my when my kids grow up and they want to be something i'm not gonna say no you can't do that if you want to go do it you have the freedom to go do it you're your own individual go do it if China wants to be a superpower, then it needs to grow up like an adult and start taking responsibility for the things that happen in their nation, which you kind of know what I'm trying to say, mm-hmm. because that is the responsibility of a mature person, a responsible, mature nation as well. Once they reach that stage, which I think they blew it during this COVID thing, um, then they can be held, you know, it's like, hey, your owner, open and honest with us. You told us there's a virus and all this stuff. But as far as trade goes, yeah, they've got a lot of debt that they own. And I don't think they want to actually destroy their financial system just to destroy our financial system. That, that That's almost like a nuke war in its own way. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, 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 and like I said, it goes right back to the same thing. That is not really a good option these days with the economy and the world globalization of trade. We need to come up with a way. We'll work together to solve these problems. Uh, the China Sea is an issue. Why, why don't they just make an independent company that works in that whole China Sea and certain proceeds go in certain percentiles into through an agreement to all the nations there. I, I don't understand why it has to be my territory, not your territory. You know, I mean, it's just, it's, it's weird how we're taking this to the extremes on all things instead of like, let's just share what the resources are and we'll go look for some new ones. You know, well, we're that, always finding yeah. new oil resources here and there or coal or something. Well, the South China Sea is very important, though, because that's a major, 
amount of economy gets shipped through that area. So mm-hmm. they um, they want to control it. Um, I can see why. Um, I don't agree with it, but I can understand why they want to do it. As far as behaving, I mean, I don't know. I think the U.S. has a lot of uh, a lot of dark history as well in our own behavior. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of hard well, to COVID, throw rocks. Uh, yeah. COVID is a great example of that. Certainly, a lot of a lot of blame to go around there. Yeah. Yeah, Wait. I think we lacked our maturity on that one. So. We know the uh, Spanish flu back in uh, 1918, right around the end of the world, uh, First World War. Um, started in Kansas. You know, people don't talk about that so much. They say, oh, it's the Spanish flu. It must be from <laughs> Spain. But no, it came from Kansas. So, so you know, there, there's it, it could come from anywhere. It could come from here. It could come from China. It could come from East Timor. You know, it, 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 uh, it doesn't matter where it comes from. What really matters is how that nation responds to it and how it warns other nations um, and how it works with other nations. And I think China doesn't deserve a very good grade in that area. I think they covered up a lot of it. Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah, but it... Uh, there were also things that, I mean, I think putting all of your trust in another country to do the right thing is a bit of a crapshoot, you know. There's well, definitely yeah. some national security arguments to be made that, you know, we should... Be, we should either know about it or handle it ourselves or have the ability to influence nations to do it the way that we'd like it to be done. For instance, the pandemic playbook that was developed after swine flu, that got scrapped. Mm-hmm. There was an infectious disease team in China that got cut. Um, I forget just if it was a budget COVID. thing or just yeah. a, yeah, just prior. Yeah. So, you know, I don't, I think it's one of those things where uh, you're handling it at the state and local level. I don't know that we need 50 pandemic response teams in China, one for each state. That does seem like something the national government probably should do mm-hmm. and can do and has done. But now it's gotten hollowed out a bit. And I, I think we need to be really careful what we're cutting and why. Yeah. And a lot of the, there's been frankly, just a lot of brain drain in the federal government. A lot of experts pushed to the side, fired, replaced with political hacks that don't have the background or don't have the skill set that they need to do their job well. Yeah. And it's going to be a a big long process cuz you know, presuming the Biden administration isn't happy with that state of affairs, it's going to take a while to find the people to fix it. Yeah. And hiring is not quick. And and Biden is is I've watched Biden since teenager since the 80s and and, and as a Republican it's kind of weird that I was been watching him, but he always spoke like I think uh, in a lot of ways, as far as a centered, uh, at the time, of course, you know, we didn't have a centrist party or an independent party or anything really. Um, and the only thing I was that time was, I guess, when I was in five years old in moving California, that John Anderson, uh, I went to a John Anderson rally because school took me there and they put me in a picture with him but, um, mm-hmm. in 79. But uh, is it just, it's just, things just got to need to change. And if we just keep doing what we're doing, it's just going to get worse. We need to somehow figure out how we're going to get together and, and work on problem, problems together. Yeah. No. Well, I think that brings us back to, that's uh, a, a pretty good segue to our final point or what I think will be our final point for the show. Reclaiming patriotism. Hmm. You know, how, do, how do we do it? How did it get lost in the first place? How did we get to this point? And what, if any, is the Alliance Party's role in that? Redefining sort of a, redefining or reclaiming 
depending on how you want to look at it, patriotism in a way that makes more sense for us as a nation. Wow. That, that's a good point. I, I, patriotism is one of those loaded words, I think. Um, you know, it, it's, is taking a knee during the national anthem, is, is, that, is that patriotism? Uh, it certainly takes guts. It took some amount of bravery, and it brought attention to a real problem. But I think a lot of people would say, no, that's not patriotism. That's just the opposite. Um, I'm of the former group. I think that is patriotism. I think it, it is a right. It's it's ironic that that uh, Kaepernick, Colin Kaepernick, is that how you pronounce his name? I forgot. Kaepernick. Kaepernick. Colin Kaepernick. When he when he when he took that knee, it was during a song that celebrates our freedom. So, <laughs> I, I saw the irony of it. But I don't know. Patriotism is, like I say, it's one of those loaded words. The people that raided the Capitol called themselves patriots. And I think that patriotism is a loaded word because after the after everything is over, that, let's say we have this this uh, this insurrection that, say, becomes successful and there's a new system established. Well, then the people that raided the Capitol are then called and commemorated as patriots. Um so I don't know. I, I think I think we got to be sort of careful with that word. I think we can redefine patriotism to mean duty, honor, country to for the common good. But these days, um, I think that um, it's questionable as to what the common good is. I think we need to get clear on it. I think that's one thing that the Alliance Party could do is help to define, you know, what it means to be a good citizen, what it means to be conscientious, what it means to work with other people, to find. Uh, common ground and to move forward. Yeah. If that's patriotism, then, then sign me up. It's very interesting. Your, your point that we may have lost sight of what the common good even is. Yeah. And one of the things that I find is, is I, I hear the common good tossed around, like it's for the common good, but who's common good. And I'm like, well, this is a free country. Everyone's liberty matters. So that means an individual Individualism is, individualism is a very strong point in this country. Um, unlike other nations, like for China, it's more of a group thing, um, cultural thing. And, and here, individualism is more of our cultural. And a lot of people take it to an extreme that my patriotism is this way and another one's patriotism is another way. Uh, in a way, I can respect everyone's individualism. The some things that they do, I don't agree with. But because we are in a liberty-minded society, my version of a patriot is different than someone else's, so I'm not going to be, you know, tell him you can't, you know, wave your flag up in the air, although the laws were in certain places might allow, not allow it. In this neighborhood, you wouldn't be allowed to put certain things up in your yard, you know. Mm -hmm. So, you know, but I agreed to that. Um, so... Yeah, I think patriotism is dependent on the individual, really, these days. And what a better way to, the way I look at it is, what a better way to say that we freely reached a, a point where we need to learn we need to be mature than now, when patriotism can mean a whole lot of things to each individual. But the one thing we're lacking is the respect toward other people mm -hmm. for that. Mm-hmm. If we had the respect toward everyone having their own views of their individuality and their what makes them a patriot, I think it would go a long way to uniting us as a country. And I think our party would be that party to do that. Um, I do think there need to be some limits 
to that because you know word words should still have meanings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I, I don't think I don't think I could take seriously someone who believes that their patriotism is carrying a Confederate flag, for instance. No, that's that's literally the antithesis of being a patriot. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, and I, I agree. I mean, the the Confederate flag. I understand. It, my respect to them is not that I respect the Confederate flag because my, my family tree didn't come from that Confederate flag, but, um, or even the Union flag actually, but they were in America and they were farmers and they stayed that way during the whole civil war. And so they had rode it through basically uh, because they did what they do every day. They go out and farm, but there were people around them. I'm sure that were all gung ho for this cause or that cause. And, you know, and a lot of us are all in different places today, just like then. And you got to kind of like say, I disagree with that, but I respect you as a human being. I guess that's where I'm going, as a living creature of God. And I disagree with the Confederate flag thing uh, being like something that has to mean something today. But to that person who's waving it, obviously they're doing it because they feel it's something to them. Um, I think honestly and my my personal thing is it's a it's a heritage thing and it belongs in a museum <laughs> it's mm-hmm. to remind us where we've evolved from so <laughs> but you know it, it's still an individual liberty decision of mine so you know we all have these different views now i do respect the law so if it's not allowed in some places like i said of of whatever you have gun laws or whatever and those local communities then, you know, I won't carry it in there because, you know what, I just want to show respect to other fellow Americans. Yeah. It's just my way of saying I'm willing to get, be a little selfless for a while for my own personal bias. That, that's interesting. I, I've In my previous job, I did a lot of worldwide travel, um, many different countries throughout Europe and Asia. And one thing I notice about other Americans is they can be very, very some of them, not all of them, but they can be very um, unaware of the need for paying attention to the local culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I would pay attention to those things. Like, you know, in Japan, for example, when you hand someone your business card, you don't do it like Americans. You walk up to them and just stick it out there and say, hey, here's my business card. You know, there's a whole tradition, and I learned by watching you hold it with both hands and you bow as you give the business card. You know, so, so you emulate that, right? And that's just showing respect for people. And I think the same way with, with America, too. You go into different parts of the states, uh, some uh, are different different states, I should say, uh, and even different sections of each state. They're all going to have their own way of doing things. And I think that's one of the problems that we see right now with the big parties out there is they want to put uh, gun laws to make them universal. Um, they want to, you know— it, I mean, you just go right down the list of, you know, who can, who can fly the flag, where they can fly it, and so on. It just doesn't resonate in certain communities. And and this is why I really like the Alliance Party, because it, it, um, it doesn't try to push a national platform and ram it down the throat of all the local communities. Uh, you mentioned gun control earlier, uh, gun laws. Um, I'm perfectly fine with someone who wants to wear a sidearm right if that's what the laws allow in that area you know and it's you know my wife probably wouldn't agree with me but i'd be comfortable in that environment um 
just as comfortable, you know, being in an area that doesn't allow guns, right? That doesn't allow concealed weapons or anything like that. Um, because knowing that this, these things work in different communities in different ways, and they should be, there's this libertarian sort of perspective I have on things, that people should be allowed to have that degree of control. And I think that the Alliance Party, um, using I was just using gun control as, as an example, but the Alliance Party really doesn't uh, push that agenda from a federal level down. It allows the local level to move up. And, and well, I mean, it would sound to me then, Dan, like maybe the Alliance Party doesn't have a role in reclaiming patriotism. So I, I just don't, I can't imagine a way in which we could have uh, an understanding of America's values moving so wildly from city to city or from county to county, little in state to state. Uh, you know, there needs to be some sort of national character, uh, national laws, whether that's, I mean, you could consider uh, fidelity to the constitution or fidelity to the ideals within the constitution or just you're on board with America, the state. Mm-hmm. I think that could also be a valid interpretation. But I, I, you know, I do think there has to be some sort of practical limit to what we can understand patriotism to be, without it being everything and thus nothing. Well, that's I. And I think that was the framers of the Constitution. If I may answer that, the framers of the Constitution. Um, set up that environment, right? The, the, the federal uh, government has the Bill of Rights, has various different uh, uh, amendments. We're, we're from not that. talking about legality, though. This is more of a, the spirit of patriotism as a concept. Mm-hmm. Obviously, yeah, there, there are provisions in the Constitution, and rightly so, for uh, you know, local laws and state sovereignty and things like that. Right super valuable and and well thought out by the founders but it's still a nation of one national character you know the values in the constitution should be held by all states for instance well i think okay so if i may take another stab at this i'd I'd have to go back to what kent said about respect and respecting the values of other peoples of people of other states i don't know is that patriotism is that yeah, I think that yeah. that probably goes with it. Yeah, yeah, I I agree with that. And it, it's a definition of patriotism. I mean, it's a devotion to vigorous support for one's country, and 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 waving the American flag. I have no question that they, in their hearts, truly believe. And no one from the public standpoint that they truly believe in their country. When someone who says I care about the homeless people and their left winger, I have no doubt in my mind they care about other Americans. Mm-hmm. They believe in their country. The question is, is how do we solve the homeless problem? How do we solve the problem that someone's trying to tell you at a state level that your entire county, your city, your entire western part of the state has to follow gun control laws when you don't feel, liberty-wise, that you have to? Why does it have to be a state level telling you that? Mm-hmm. But the still, the thing is, it's down to local level. These people all feel like patriots and they contributing to their country in their own way as an individual. And that is something, if we can learn how to figure out how to respect that and get our government to stop telling everybody that one region has to do what because the other region wants you to, mm-hmm. then we can then maybe take that out. If you take that, if you just minus that out, the higher levels of government pushing agendas on every part of the 
every part, other part of the region of the country or each part of states, then maybe we can all agree that we do our things all differently, maybe everywhere else, but we have one thing in common, and that is we all agree to respect each other, to love our country, to love our American people. We could sit down and have a cup of coffee with the opposite values of a person, talk about our day, talk about our kids, and we can wake up the next morning knowing that everything's just fine. I, I don't see how that can be so wrong. And, yeah. and it seems yeah. like everybody wants to say, I can't talk to you because you're a family member and you need to leave the opposite of me. I'm really saddened by that. Yeah. And, 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 and my patriotism is way deeper than this agenda-driven stuff that both parties are doing now. This is a solutions party. We need to solve these problems, not create some kind of agenda where 20% of my local region says that we need to go this direction, whether it be pro-choice or pro-abortion or pro-life or whatever, but you disrespect the 80% in your region, that's not representation. You're driving an agenda and both parties seem to be doing that a lot mm, lately mm -hmm. and they're not representing the majority of those local regions. They're not listening to the black population. They're not listening to the Western part of my state for gun, uh, whatever they want to do with guns. I, and the East part wants gun control and they can have it. Let them have it. They want to, you know, they're both popular cities that have lots of people really congregated together. They want to keep guns out of their local community. Fine. If you feel safe that way, I'm full. Are all Americans being safe? That's, that's, but some people feel safe with guns around you. Some do not. So yeah. we need to just respect these people. Yeah. Well put. Okay. Well, let's, uh, Let's wrap this up here. I, I, we had a pretty wide-ranging discussion, a lot to think about. Thank you, Kent. Really appreciate your time joining us here. No I could have uh, talked for another two or three hours. <laughs> I know, especially once we get into the foreign policy stuff. In fact, oh maybe we should at some point in the future just do a more of a foreign policy-oriented show. It's not something we've talked about a lot on the, on the podcast the past couple of months. I like that idea. I really do. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, Xi Jinping rather interests me in Putin. So. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, we've been talking with Kent Gershfile, the Alliance Party State Chair for Virginia. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure talking with you. Pleasure. Thank you, everyone out there, for tuning into the Alliance Party After Dark. Please consider subscribing to this podcast so that you don't miss any episodes. Each week, we'll bring you interesting topics and hopefully some guests from the Alliance Party. You may subscribe on iTunes, Google, or Spotify. Keep in mind that we also have a Twitter page. It's at Alliance On Air. If you have any suggestions for future topics or people we might want to have as guests for interviews, please drop us an email at podcast at theallianceparty.com. This show is a production of the Alliance Party, a decades-long movement of fiscally conservative, moderate, accountable, and reasoned independents, former Democrats, former Republicans, and just generally alienated voters, who demand that our elected officials work in the spirit of nonpartisanship for all constituents and provide a better future for our country. All content for this podcast is copyrighted the Alliance Party. However, the views expressed on the show do not necessarily reflect those of the Alliance Party. This podcast was made possible by your donations and support. If you'd like to join us, visit our website at theallianceparty.com. That is theallianceparty.com. Drop in, see what we're all about. Get involved, volunteer your time, make a donation. We're looking for articles and blogs. And, you know, if you're so inclined, we're looking for people to run for office, too. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Greg from Philly, your host for this evening for Alliance Party After Dark, joined by, of course, Dan Schaefer. 
On behalf of everyone at the Alliance Party, myself, Dan, Kent, all the other leadership and members out there that are working so hard to try to make a third party a reality in this country, have a wonderful evening, great week ahead, and we hope you drop in for the next show. Be safe, take care of yourself, and take care of those around you.